people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Folks, welcome to a very special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, we have Dwayne Epstein back in the booth. He was on our Prime Cut episode all those years ago, episode 110. And he is back with a new book looking at The Dirty Dozen. It is called Killing Generals, The Making of The Dirty Dozen, the most iconic World War II movie of all times. And let me tell you that it is a terrific book. Dwayne really puts together a great story about one of the greatest movies. I, will, I don't know if it's the most iconic World War II movie of all times, but it's definitely up there. It's one of those books where you sit down and you start to read it. And next thing you know, you are 50 pages in. And next thing you know, after that, you are done reading that book because it is just a page turner to read all about the background to the movie and how it's actually put together. It was wonderful. Highly recommended, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Did this come out directly from your research on Lee Marvin, or did you come to this through another avenue? Both. The way it happened was Lee Marvin Point Blank was an a unexpected but wonderful surprise in its success, both critically and financially. Financially, it made it to number four in the New York Times bestsellers list, and critically, it won a couple of publishing awards was one of the independent book awards book of the year it was one of forward magazine's book of the year and it was up for several other awards but anyway what happened was in the interim after it came out and it was successful my agent a wonderful man by the name of mike hamilberg who you don't meet a lot of really decent people in men's life you meet nice people good people schmucks bad people but mike hamilberg was a true head to toe mensch he really was. And what unfortunately happened was we were working on another project, but Mike passed away. Matter of fact, I spoke to him literally the day before he died. He left a message on my answering machine about the project we would be working on. And I did a proposal and he called me the day before he had a stroke and he never came out of a coma and passed away. And what he said was, what you did here was great. Now the ball is in my park and I got to go out and push it. And he passed away. So I was devastated, but in the interim, without having an agent and not having any real connections in the publishing world, I was in free fall. Now, what happened was the gentleman who published Lee Marvin Point Blank was a guy named Tim Schaffner, who is a open-minded publisher, independent publisher in the truest sense of the word. The company is Schaffner Press. And eventually, he agreed to publish a biography on Charles Bronson, which was going to be my next project. And in the interim, I had gathered a whole lot of exclusive information, all kinds of great stuff. I interviewed people Bronson went to school with, close friends, associates, co-workers, what have you. And Tim liked the idea, so I was moving forward with that. But then at one point, another possibility of a great project came up. So I asked Tim, can I take a kind of sabbatical on the Bronson book while I work on something else? And he said, okay. And I worked on that something else, which I won't go into because it's still in the works, believe it or not. But once I had it down, I came back to the Bronson Project and talked to Tim and said, I'm ready to come back to work on the book. And Tim said, this was done through an email. And Tim said, you're going to have to call me. We have to talk. So I called him. And what he said to me was, I've been thinking about it when the time took off, and I want to move my company into another direction. So what we can do is this. You keep the advance, 
I'm canceling the contract. Yeah. So once again, I was back in free fall. This was about 2017, 2018. And I wound up having to take a day job to pay my bills. You do what you can. And in the and then an interesting thing happened. There's a gentleman by the name of Lee Sobel, who is a literary agent who specializes in nonfiction, specifically retro pop culture. It's as if this guy was made for me. And he contacted me, which is really weird. He contacted me and said, I read your Lee Marvel book and I like it a lot. Do you need an agent? And I thought, agents don't do that. <laughs> Writers seek out agents don't necessarily seek out clients, generally speaking. And I told him that, and he said, why are writers so cynical? An agent can do what I'm doing. And I thought, if an agent is doing what you're doing, there's something not quite on the up and up here. It seemed like a hustle. So I looked him up. I checked him out from 10 Ways to Sunday. And then I got back to him, and I said, all right, you know what? I need an agent. My agent passed away. And, and he knew my agent, too, by the way, my Hamilton. That's how great Hamilton was. And he said, okay, what do you got in mind? So I told him a couple of the ideas that I, first off, I said, how about a Brian and Charles Bronson? And he went, no way. And I said, why? And he goes, one reason is that most of the publishers I deal with aren't interested in celebrity biographies. They're interested more in books about a specific film. If you want to do a bio on Bronson, you've got to contact a university press. And they don't pay very well. But that I knew. Anyway, so then we started talking about possible movie ideas. And he said, books about movies. First one he said was point blank. And I said, I like that movie. It's a good movie, but it's certainly not a favorite compared to some of the other films Lee Marvin made. And the very next thing I said was, what about a book on the Dirty Dozen? And he said, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And then he said, he got back to me a couple of days later and he said, you know what? He actually said this to me. I'm a fool. I don't know what I'm talking about. Apparently, a book on the Dirty Dozen might just work. You think you can get a proposal to me? Uh, yeah, I'm going to work on it. And so I did. Now, this is the amazing part. Actually, part of the whole thing sounds amazing so far, but he says to me, get me a proposal and I'll shop it around. And I did. Now, while he was shopping it around, my landlord decided to fumigate our building because we had a problem with termites. Nice timing, right? So I was out of the apartment for three to four days. And we had been contacting each other, Lee Sobel and I, usually through video or by phone. Now, while I was out of the apartment, I wasn't able to check my email. Then I went to the library. My girlfriend and I went to the library so I could plug in and check my email. And I got four messages from him. The last one going, where in the F are you? In capital letters. So I answered. And what I got was a response that said, and I look at the previous messages too. And the previous messages were like, they're offering this much. They're offering that much. They're and then by the last one, where he went, where the yep are you? They had gone their limit. They wouldn't go any higher. So it was a good thing I wasn't home because he asked me, I need you to tell me yes or no. Do we take this deal or not? And I went, we take the deal. And then he got back to me two seconds later when he says, we're on. And I'm in the library, okay, a library. And I'm hooting and hollering and everybody's staring at me. It's like a scene right out of a movie. So that's how the book Killing Generals came to be. When was the first time you saw The Dirty Dozen, and what did you think? I'm old enough to, I'm not old enough to have seen, actually, I was old enough to see the theater, but I didn't. I was about six or seven when it came out. But the first time I saw it was on television when it first aired on TV. I don't know if you remember this or not. I don't even know how old you are, but that's okay. When they first aired it, they used to air it in two parts CBS Thursday Night Movie and CBS Friday Night. Movie. And even when I watch it now, I can remember vividly when both parts started and ended. And then years later, I got to see it in a repertory theater here in LA. And back in the 80s and 90s, used to be a lot of them. I used to go to those theaters once or twice a week. And I think it was at the New Beverly where they showed it and I saw it on the big screen. As much as I remembered and loved the movie, it blows your way on the big screen. You were overwhelmed by it. And that's when I first saw it and I've been watching it ever since. And by the way, even if you don't want to see it, it's kind of inevitable if you're watching TCM on any given night, because I guess it was and is one of Ted Turner's favorite films, other than Gone with the Wind, because they show it constantly. And I think that's a good thing. I really do. And uh, watch it every time it's on. Yeah, it's funny. As we're recording this, it's just a few days after D-Day. 
It's week after Memorial Day, and they were playing World War II movies all day on Memorial Day on TCM, and right there, smack in the middle, the Dirty Dozen. You betcha. I knew they would. Even before I saw the list, and because I I'm signed up to their emailing list, once I saw they were going to do a, mar- a Memorial Day marathon, I was like, all right, where's the Dirty Dozen? Yeah, they got to have it. And I saw it. It was on Monday, 1030 in the morning in the Pacific Standard Time. And so it was in the middle of the afternoon back east. So to my mind, other than prime time, it was the perfect time to show it. Oh, yeah. And I was sitting there watching it the entire time, too. (laughs) Right on. (laughs) It's got some of the best stuff, especially the best bringing together of the team and exploring that dynamic. And then the whole thing of... Lee Marvin, breaking them down, putting them back together, that magical moment where John Cassavetes refuses to shave, that really just brings the whole team together. It's magical. Boy, do I love that Franco. (laughs) It's one thing, it was such an influential movie at the time it came out. MGM was hoping it would be successful. They had no idea it would be as successful as it was. It was the number one box office hit in the country of the year it was released. And it was a pretty seminal year in terms of great films. There was a sea change in American filmmaking in the heat of the night, Cool Hand Luke, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, all came out the same year. And what's interesting is the influence of that film exists to this day, by the way, which I won't go into right at the moment. But what I find interesting is anything that's ever either either in an homage to the Dirty Dozen or sometimes an out-and-out ripoff, they all seem to miss one important factor, which is the main thing that made the film successful. There have been war movies before. There have been war movies since. There certainly was war movies during the time The Dirty Dozen came out. But what made The Dirty Dozen stand out was not necessarily its premise, but it was so character-driven, really character-driven. Even the smallest role, practically, had an important backstory and you knew who these people were. And they forgot that over time, that, that they even made a couple of TV movie sequels and they made that mistake. They thought it was more about the outrageousness of the plot. Like in the first TV movie sequel, they try to save Hitler's life because it would prolong the war too long if Hitler was killed. But this is stupid. I'm sorry. And other examples like that. But in the Dirty Dozen, even the minor characters, the one they called the bottom six, even they had moments. And the other thing about the film that I loved was the effect it had on every single person's career. Everybody, from director Robert Aldridge and producer Ken Hyman, whom I interviewed, by the way, he's still alive, to leading man Lee Marvin, all the way down the cast list. Everybody's career either exploded or was launched by, and there is a difference, by the Dirty Dozen. And I can give you example after example. It was amazing the effect it had on everybody's career. There's the whole, just the Dirty Dozen themselves, along with, of course, Lee Marvin. But then all the other people around them, like Ernest Borgnine and George Kennedy, just stellar cast all the way through. George Kennedy never really had a leading role until after the Dirty Dozen. And rather ironically, John Cassavetes was the only member of the cast who got an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Kennedy and Luke, rather ironic, <laughs> but once The Dirty Dozen came out, George Kennedy started playing leads in movies, character leads, but leads. Cassavetes didn't want to do The Dirty Dozen, but he got talked into it by Ken Hyman and really not only resurrected his career, John Cassavetes, it saved his career. For a reasoning that I go into in, in the book, Cassavetes was basically blacklisted because of a series of events that took place with another film he had made. And as he put it, he couldn't get into a Looney Tunes cartoon if he wanted to. Ken Hyman approached him. Cassavetes reluctantly agreed because Ken Hyman said, look, I know you're working on a movie of your own and you've run out of money. Make the dirty dozen and you can use that money to finish your film. And that's how he talked him into it. The movie Cassavetes was working on was Faces. And he did. And the end result was John Cassavetes became the father of American independent filmmaking. Because from there, after Faces, his career as a filmmaker took off. And it started a process he did for the rest of his life. He would do a movie for the money and use the money to make the movie he wanted to make, which is what a lot of filmmakers do now. He was the first. He made Rosemary's Baby after The Dirty Dozen, and he hated it because he couldn't stand working with Roman Polanski. 
which is the opposite of working with Robert Aldridge. He loved working with Aldridge. And here's another example. Robert Aldridge is the king of the Maverick filmmakers. And there was this rumor that existed for a long time that the reason why he didn't get a Best Director nomination for The Dirty Dozen was because he didn't want to change the end of the film, that ultra-violent explosion of the chateau. I asked Ken Hyman if that was true, and he said, absolutely not. That's just not true. He told me that Aldridge didn't get a nomination because he didn't like the Hollywood establishment, and the Hollywood establishment didn't like him, no matter how successful his films were. He never got a nomination for Whatever Happened to Baby Jane or Trust Sweet Charlotte or, or Kiss Me Deadly or Flight of the Phoenix, The Longest Yard. The guy had a great career, but he didn't like Hollywood and he loved filmmaking. And he famously said at one point about not getting nominated for The Dirty Dozen, he said, look, if I made a biblical epic, I wouldn't get nominated, which is an interesting thing for him to say because he did once make a biblical epic. It was Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> Now, after The Dirty Dozen came out, it was so successful. He had already had his own production company. And to show you what a liberal he was, the company was called Associates and Aldridge. He put the people who worked for him ahead of himself. And the money he got allowed him to do something he had always wanted to do. He bought his own studio. He had his own production company, but this allowed him to buy a studio where he could film on site. Now, ultimately... The studio really didn't work out, but that's another story. For Ken Hyman, who produced The Dirty Dozen, it was so successful, it allowed him to become the head of Warner Brothers Seven Arts. He became the CEO, and it was because of him being the head of Warner Brothers Seven Arts. We got films like The Wild Bunch. We got Paul Newman's directing debut, Rachel Rachel, the launch of Paul Mazursky's film directing career. The tentacle effect that The Dirty Dozen had on people's careers. It's fascinating to me. Launched Jim Brown's career, launched Donald Sutherland's career, made Charles Bronson a superstar because he stayed in Europe after the movie was over and then went on to make some of the best Euro crime and Westerns ever made by anybody. And by the time he came back to the States, he was a superstar. Like I said, it had this wonderful ripple effect for everyone. Now, I know, obviously, you had done a lot of research on Bronson. You obviously had done a lot of research on Lee Marvin. How else are you approaching this? Tell me your methodology of actually doing the research for this project. The main thing I did was approach it as best as I could, because there's information out there that's all over the place. And so I had to get what I could chronologically. And I was extremely lucky in that a friend of mine who's also a nonfiction writer of film history. Her name is Beverly Gray. She did a wonderful bio on Ron Howard. Used to work for Roger Corman, and she wrote a book about that. But she also wrote a book called Seduced by Mrs. Robinson, The Effect the Graduate Had on a Generation. And I used that book as a kind of a template about how to write The Dirty Dozen. And ultimately, because we're friends, I had told Beverly what I was working on. And she said to me, oh, really? That sounds like a great subject. By the way, did you know I did an interview with the author of the novel, E.M. Nathanson? Now, Nathanson died in 2016, okay? So whatever I could find on him was piecemeal. And I said, did you get this interview published? And she said, no, it never came to pass. Would you like it? And I went, Beverly, I think I love you. So she did. And it wound up becoming the best jumping off point you can imagine because he talked so candidly to her for several hours that it gave me the entire genesis of the project. And he went on and all the way up to projects he was working on shortly before he passed. So that was the best jumping off point I could get. It put me in the direction of where to go with anything and everything else. And the way the novel came about is one of my favorite stories. Believe it or not, it involved, of all people, the king of sexploitation, Russ Meyer, which just amazed me. <laughs> it was incredible. You know, he was often called the king of Lear, L-E-E-R. Russ Meyer was friends with Mick Nathanson. That's what friends and family called it, Mick. He hated the name Irwin, and who can blame him? Matter of fact, at one point, he even tried to legally change his name, but I don't remember why it didn't happen. In any event, when um, I think, I'm not positive, but I think they may have known each other in the service, just slightly. Now, Nathanson was living in New York. He decided to move to L.A. And when he moved to L.A., he looked up Russ Meyer. And Nathanson's son told me that Meyer and his wife 
at the time, would come over to their house and play gin and have cocktails, whatever. And at one point during a conversation, Nathanson was working on a project involving the Navy and some scandal involving some officers who had done something illegal, whatever. And when he told that to Russ Meyer, Meyer said, interesting, reminds me of the Dirty Dozen. And Nathanson said, when he told me that and the story surrounding it, he goes, the hackles on the back of my neck stood up, which is why I named that chapter that. And Russ Meyer proceeded to tell him about the Dirty Dozen. The story goes, when Russ Meyer was in the service, he was a combat photographer under in, in a unit under Patton, of all people. And he was assigned to go to a military prison and photograph these gentlemen who had decided that they were calling themselves or the guards had called them the Dirty Dozen. And they were being trained for a mission overseas behind enemy lines. And Russ Meyer took their photo, shot some film, live action, not live action, but yeah, film, and turned it in to his superiors. And he came back about a month later, curious to find out where they were and what happened to them because they weren't there anymore. And the commanding officer said, oh, they went on the mission and they were all killed. And then Russ Meyer decided, well, if that's the case, I got to find out what happened to my film. So he did a kind of a trail to find out what happened to that film. And everywhere he went, he was either stonewalled or sent somewhere else and told that we don't know where that is. So he told that story to Nathanson and Nathan decided whatever I'm working on now, because he was a professional writer. He worked for some newspapers and magazines. And he goes, whatever I'm working on now, I'm dropping it. and I'm going to focus on the Dirty Dozen. He spent the next two years looking to find what Russ Meyer had done. And he had access to the Pentagon archives, the National Archives, the Quantico archives in Virginia, military assignments or what have you. And he went two years searching for all this and came up with nothing. There was no record of anyone. Now, even when it comes to top secret information, it means it exists. And he had top secret clearance. And he never found anything. We know about classified and declassified stuff now because of the former president. And he would have been able to access it, but he never found anything. So ultimately, but what he did do was in the research he was doing, he discovered the transcripts of many military trials. And he found out how these trials went, what these men were convicted for, how they attempted to defend themselves. And he went through the psychiatric record of these men with the help of another friend of his who was a military psychiatrist who gave him the records and the transcripts to go through when he made notes. And so consequently, at some point, he decided, you know what, I'm going to write a work of fiction. I'm going to base it on some factual events I'm aware of, but otherwise, this is a complete work of fiction. And I discovered where he got some of what he got. It's fascinating. One of my favorite things about what he wrote was, in the book, the character of Maggot is one of the more interesting characters in the film. In the book, he's actually three different characters. There's a character who is a Southern bigot, a racist. There's a character who is a, a sexual psychopath. And there is a character who's a religious fanatic. Three different characters. When they wrote the screenplay by Nunnally Johnson, and later it was revised by Lucas Heller, they decided to make it one guy. And, and what amazed me was when you watch the movie, you'd never know it. Telly Savalas plays that guy so believably that you could believe the sex, pervert, racist, religious pig is all one guy. <laughs> so strange. It's interesting, too. Nathanson told Beverly where the character of Maggot, because Maggot in the book is just a murderous bigot. And it was based on a real person. And they actually made a movie about this incident. There was a town, I believe it was called Phoenix City either Alabama or Arkansas, and it was near a, a military installation, Fort somewhere, and I don't know. And it was a Wild West, scandalous-ridden, lawless town, prostitution, gambling, murder. In fact, the, the DA who was hired to clean up the town and was elected shortly before he took office, he was murdered. And they made a movie out of it, and it was called Phoenix City Story. And it's a great movie because it, it just pops. It was made in the 50s, but it goes like this. And the character, John Larch, great character actor, the character he played in the movie, he was the basis for Maggot. He was a torpedo for one of the gambling bosses. 
And anybody who didn't fall in line, John Locke's character took care of him. So that's how it was based on fact. You know, interesting stuff, I think. Savalas is just, oh, another just stellar performance. One of my favorite things about him in that movie, Jim Brown wrote his autobiography. When they went to the screening of the film, and after Teller Savalas was bumped off by Jim Brown, he was sitting next to Jim Brown. And Teller Savalas elbowed him and went, I'm out of the movie's over. And he got up and walked out. Isn't that great? I know the man had a famous ego, but that, that to me is amazing. He missed the, the conclusion, the climax, <laughs> which he probably did because he wasn't there for that. So anyway, I thought it was pretty cool. That interview with the author almost falls in your lap. Amazing. You get to talk with at least one of the producers. Who else did you talk with for the book? Oh, I got lucky. The film was made over 50 years ago. So there weren't a whole lot of interviews I could have done. I did get to interview Donald Sutherland, who is still with us. Oh, wow. You managed to make it past this person, huh? I sent her my resume and my bio, and she said, I'll have to let Mr. Sutherland know, and I don't know when else he'll get back to me. I don't think he'll be interested in this. Ultimately, I guess when she did talk to Sutherland, surprised her, she said to me, believe it or not, Mr. Sutherland will indeed be interested. However, he cannot talk to you directly. I don't know if he couldn't or she wouldn't let him. She said, you submit me some questions and I'll send it to him. I'll send it on to him, which is what I did. And he allowed me one follow-up question. I wanted to do more, but she went, no, he's done enough. And then when the book came out, I contacted her and said, would you allow me to send a copy of the book to Donald Sutherland? And she went, yes, send it to me and I'll send it to him. And that's exactly what I did. So that worked out. Now, when you asked me about who else I was able to talk to, one of the things I wound up doing was when I worked on Lee Marvin Point Blank, there were still some co-workers that were still alive at the time that I was able to talk to. And naturally, in Lee Marvin Point Blank, I wrote about the Dirty Dozen. And one of the people I spoke to was Clint Walker at the time. Another wound up being, as you probably are made aware of when you read the book, a gentleman who told me some of the best anecdotes, a guy named Bob Phillips now, or Robert Phillips in his credit. I got to call him Bob because he liked me and I liked him. But what wound up happening was I met him to talk about Lee Mark, and he worked with Lee on several films other than The Dirty Dozen, but he worked with him on The Dirty Dozen the most. We went to lunch. We wound up finishing lunch, going out into the parking lot and talking for another couple of hours. What happened was I was with him about 20 minutes, and he's telling me some stories, and 20 minutes into it, Bob says to me, you know, there were two bad guys in that movie, The Dirty Dozen. said, yeah, Robert Ryan as Colonel Everett Dasher Breed, but who was the other one? And then he looked at me and he smiled and he goes, do I look familiar? And I didn't know who he was. And I went, oh, you were Corporal Morgan, weren't you? And I did it like that. And then he got a big grin. And he said, yeah, I consider myself the other heavy in the film. And from there, the stories took off. And he was a fascinating man. He left us, I think it was in 1999 or 2000. But what a resume he had. He, he was a, a, football, a pro football player. He was a self-defense instructor in the Marines during World War II. He was Adley Stevenson's personal bodyguard. He was an L.A. police detective whose main source of information was Johnny Stompanato. Don't you love that name? The guy who was stabbed to death by Lana Turner's daughter. And all kinds of great background. And when he got the role in The Dirty Dozen to play Corporal Morgan, the script he had read, Morgan was a bigger part. He was on screen. Well, he's still on screen a lot because he's in the background, but he doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue. And that really pissed him off. But he was going to do the movie anyway. And consequently, he wound up making a little bit more money because as the way Ken Hyman said it to me was that Bob Phillips served a dual purpose. He was the character of Corporal Morgan, and he was also Lee Marvin's bodyguard. Now, that was the term that Ken Hyman used. When I talked to Bob Phillips, he said, bodyguard my ass. I was Lee Marvin's babysitter. I was the guy who had to make sure he showed up for work every day and showed up sober. Now, a couple of the stories he told me went into Lee Marvin point blank. The overwhelming majority of stuff he told me didn't, but they went into killing generals. And matter of fact, one of my favorite quotes of his was something he said to Army Archer while the film was in production that I wound up using as a chapter title. 
it was Bob Phillips saying, I guess he was pissed off. His role was cut back. He wrote that Charles Bronson has more lines on his face than I have in this movie. So <laughs> I love that. When Bronson confronted him and went, did you really say that? And Bob Phillips, would, you know, Army Archer made that up. <laughs> and, you know, the stories he told me about having to be Lee's babysitter, most of them are hysterical. Some of them are tragic and poignant. And the thing is, because his character didn't go on the mission at the end of the film, Richard Jacob does, boss, the head MP, but because Bob Phillips didn't go on the mission, his time in the movie was done and he went back to Hollywood. The movie wasn't quite done, and that meant Lee Marvin didn't have a babysitter, which also meant when they were shooting the end of the movie, Bronson was quite anxious to get back to Hollywood so he can marry his fiance, Jill Ireland. They weren't married then. And the last day of filming, and once Aldridge said, cut, Groncho was going to be on a plane back to L.A. What happened was we were, they were waiting for Lee, they were waiting for Lee, and they were waiting for Lee. No Lee Marvin to be found. Groncho was getting beyond pissed. Ken Hyman told me I had a pretty good idea of where Lee was. So he goes, I jumped in my limo, drove to this bar called the, oh, it had a really, Ogravia or something like that. And it was, a very, it was in London. Because the movie was shot on the outskirts in London. And it was very famous because apparently that's where the English great train robbery had been planned. It was in this pub. So it had a reputation. Hyman said, when I got there, Lee was on the floor happily singing to himself, which of course meant he was blotto. So he goes, I picked him up, poured him into the limo, and started shoveling coffee down his throat. And then the time it took back to, to get back to location, Lee began sobering up, but when he, got, when he fell out of the limo, Ken Hyman said, Charlie took one look at him and went, Lee, I'm going to fucking kill you. And Marvin was all smiles. He went, Charlie, what's the problem? And then Bronson started to move on Marvin, and Ken Hyman got between them and said, please, Charlie, don't hit him in the face. We've got to do close-ups on him yet. So eventually, Bronson simmered down, and they got the shot. And what's interesting is the sequence, and I think if you watch the movie, the sequence they were waiting to shoot was having that half track go over the other German car and over the bridge. Okay. If you watch that scene close, watch Marvin try to shift. Okay. It's interesting. It takes him several tries. And I think that's why he actually did drive it. But as a matter of fact, I found out the first time he tried it, he was given lessons. He was like, piece of cake, no big deal. He ran it into a wall. It took some more lessons. And like I said, that happened because Bob Phillips wasn't around anymore. He became very good friends with John Cassavetes. And when Phillips arrived in London, he was extremely upset about what was going to happen to his character. He did do some voiceover work in the film, too, when the, the dozen are grumbling about this, that, or the other. But Cassav he told Cassavetes how pissed off he was. And Cassavetes gave him some very sage advice. He said, look, I know you're upset, and you have reason to be upset, but do yourself a favor. If anybody asks you how this movie is going, tell them it's great. Tell them it's the best thing you ever did. Why? Because they're not going to know for another year until the movie comes out. If you tell them it's great and they don't know anything about it, it'll get you more work. And Bob Phillips said that was probably the smartest thing anybody ever said to me, because that's exactly what happened. And Cassavetes was no fool. He knew how the game was played. And one of the things I loved about, aside from the fact that he's my favorite thing in the film, look, I love Lee Marvin and he was great, but Cassavetes commits grand theft, larceny. He just steals that movie. He's incredible. And I love finding out he had told a biographer that he said, I didn't think I'd get along with Robert Aldridge, but believe it or not, I got along great. He's the best director other than myself I ever worked with. And he said, the reason why was he called, he said he was more than a coach. He said he called his cast the monsters. He like during rehearsal, all right, monsters around the table. And every time we do the read through, Cassavetti said, I had no fear. Anytime he wanted somebody to do something or come up with an idea for something, Cassavetti said, I'd shoot my hand up right away. I'd be like, I'll do it. You want somebody? I'll do it. And he said, and all the other dogs would be grumbling under their breath. But many of the things Cassavetes did on screen were complete impro improvisation. He'd work it out in rehearsal, but it wasn't in the script necessarily. And Lee Marvin had said to another cast member, he loved working with John because he goes, John plays his part so well. He gives me so much to work with. It makes my job easier. I can go with whatever he's giving me and it winds up being brilliant. And if you think of some of the scenes they had together, you can see it. 
when Marvin interviews Cassavetes in the cell in the beginning of the movie, and Cassavetes does that great, lascivious laugh, and he's like, are you a general? <laughs> You're not a general, because only a general can grant my reprieve. When you see Marvin roll his eyes and go, look, stupid. It was the way they played off each other that was so brilliant. And Cassavetes knew it, and so did Marvin, and it worked great. And Marvin was the same way. In certain moments in the movie, Jim Brown was the one who said in his autobiography that Cassavetes was our spiritual leader. He was a great little mentor because whatever mood he was in that day was the way Franco was and the way we all were. Okay, He goes, if Franco was going to be mischievous, John was mischievous, and so were we all. If Cassavetes was moody, Franco was moody, and we were moody. We all took our cue from him. He goes, he was a great natural teacher. And I think that rubbed off. If you remember that scene where Trini Lopez is supposed to climb the rope and he can't do it, and then, which by the way is right out of the book, they changed the certain aspects of it that it wasn't Yemenez, it was another character. But anyway, and I can't make it major. And then Lee Marvin cuts the end of the rope right by his feet with a machine gun. And you see him scramble up the rope. And then Marvin says, all right, who's next? And Cassavetes goes, partially improvised line. He goes, I thought you said mayonnaise was the only one supposed to climb, get to the top of the shot, too. By the way, him calling Yemenez mayonnaise, great touch. All Cassavetes. And Marvin holds his gun on his hip. And the way he says this line, not written this way. It is written this way, but you can't put this in the script of how it's supposed to be played. He rolls his eyes and he goes, well, suppose Jimenez gets killed before he makes it to the top of the chateau. Just really making fun of Cassavetes. And, and it's brilliant doing this effeminate voice because I don't have time for this. It's a brilliant way to do that scene. And then he tells Clint Walker, one of the few references in the film to Walker's character being a Native American, saying, all right, Posey, let's see some of that Apache know-how and read that rope. And then he looks right at Cassavetes and he goes, all right, Franco, you're next. <laughs> Just really sticking it to him. A lot of great moments. And like I said, making my point, it's about character, not the mission. Although the mission itself is pretty impressive. You talked about how this would play on TV over two nights. And I can see that because it's a long movie. But did they have to pad it out at all to make it fit with commercials? Did they have any scenes that were shot and never put back in the movie or just played for TV? First of all, they used to show a lot less commercials in those days. That's one thing. There was usually only one or two sponsors for a given program. Now there's like thousands, especially on cable. But that aside, when I saw it theatrically many years later, I think it was in my late teens or 20s, to my mind, I don't remember them having cut anything. And it was done in such a way, it is a long movie, longer than average, let's put it like that. And it was like two and a half hours. So if you cut that completely in half in a two-hour time slot, making it a kind of a four-hour thing, then the extra 30 minutes are just commercial. So that's how they did it. And also, too, in part two, they also had to do a kind of a revamp of a minute or two of books on the night before. And then they would always go, and now part two of The Dirty Dozen. I do know for a fact that because for several reasons, there were major changes made in the script that was cut for purposes of censorship and also cut for purposes of time. Because the movie was running long. It ran way over schedule and way over budget, which was something MGM was very fearful of. It's just going to pay out somehow. And so much so, it's also the reason why Jim Brown quit the NFL. And was supposed to go back for the 67th season and go into the preseason workouts. He was only 29, but he retired from the NFL. And he held a press conference during the making of the movie saying why, which that's the kind of publicity you can't buy. Because I'm sure people who may have seen that press conference on the last half of the news were thinking, how great a movie must this be if the greatest running back in the history of NFL is willing to quit to finish the film? So there was that. And in the script, as in the novel, there were many changes made, which I point out in the book. I've taken a hit on the book, criticism about me summarizing the novel to make the point about what's different from the book from the film. That's why I did it. And there were several people who said things like, oh, read the beginning, read like a book report. But then it gets exciting. Or I didn't read this. Now I got to read the novel. No, schmuck, you don't have to read the novel now. I just summarized it. And I summarized it with the intent of showing what the, how the film was different. Now, 
Having said that, there were two female characters that were in the book. One of them was a major character in the book, who then later completely taken out, as well as the other character who was a, a, a barmaid girlfriend of Major Reisman, who's a captain in the book, by the way, Captain Reisman. And they cut her out completely. That was for censorship reasons. The censors read the script and went, you can't have this. And it was 60, it was, it was going to be released in 67. So the production code was like in flux. There were changes, but there were still rules they had to apply. And what's funny was the very next year in 68 is when they came out with the G, P, G, R, X. Now, but in 67, it didn't exist yet. And anytime the barmaid whose name was Tess was mentioned, the censors just went nuts. No, you had to, because whenever she's in the screen, screenplay, she's having sex with Weissman. And at one point, I think the censor wrote, he can't be nailing her again <laughs> in a memo. And there was another character who was a major plot point named Lady Margot. She's in the very beginning of the book and she's throughout the book. And she's an important character. And anything about her, she is a rich British widow who owns the property that the Dirty Dozen are training. And Reisman has to make nice with her and try to make nice with her. And he doesn't succeed because she's very cold and mean to him. But she's forced to because of the War Department. And she tries everything she can to get back at Reisman. And one of the things she does is, in the book, she's having an affair with Colonel Bree. So one of the things they never explain in the movie is, how does Breed know where the compound is when he invades? He finds out in the book from Lady Margot because she's sleeping with him. Yeah, things like that. All of that was completely taken out of the film. There were sections where it's in there, but with the revised script, they decided to cut it out. And Aldridge really didn't have a problem with that. In fact, there's a memo of him writing to Ken Hyman about how Look, we're over budget and we're over scheduled. We got to start doing some cutting. We just have to. And anything that's not important to the plot has got to go. Now, in the sequence where they're at Breed's parachute school, okay, other than the scene where Bronson gets beat up in the latrine, everything else was cut out. Oh, also when they first get there, Donald Sullivan imitates a general, okay, everything else was cut out. And there was a whole lot more to that sequence. There were scenes of Breed making fun of Reisman in front of the Dirty Dozen, Reisman getting back at him, all this other stuff, it was all cut out, all of which were also in the book, too. Now, Aldridge also wanted that scene of Bronson getting beat up cut out, too. But Hyman made the point, obviously, you can't do that because that's when the Dozen decide, first of all, that they can't trust Reisman, but it also leads into the scene when Breed comes into the compound, they see the two guys who beat up Waterslaw and go, Hey, Reisman was on the up and up all along. That, that he wasn't in on this. So that's why it was left in. But all the other stuff, that was all cut out. And because of that, there are certain moments in the movie that Dale Dye, you know who he is? Okay, Dale Dye is a military advisor to motion pictures and TV ever since the early 80s. And he helps filmmakers make movies, film, war films more believable which they really hadn't been in the past. He worked on Saving Private Ryan. He worked on Platoon. worked on a lot of movies, making them more believable. And he loves the Dirty Dozen. He's on record as saying how much he goes, Lee Marvin can read the phone book. I'm going to watch his movie. doesn't matter. But he was extremely critical of the filmmakers and what they did to make the film. And it's all in the DVD commentary. And he points out some very good, obvious mistakes. Things like during the raid on the Chateau, why are they wearing shiny combat helmets. It doesn't make any sense. And things like that. And also about some of the equipment they were using being too modern, things like that. And that's all valid. But I had my own problems with the film that for a long time went unanswered. One of the biggest things most fans of the film just scratch their heads over to this day is what happened to Posey? They never show what happened to him. But they do show him on the crawl at the end of the film, about everybody who had died. So clearly he's dead. But because they don't show him die, many fans thought, hey, Posey survived. No, he didn't survive. There was a thing that was written up. They show everybody else being killed. But they didn't show Posey being killed because Posey had a specific way of dying that Clint Walker was very much looking forward to in that it was they took two different scenes from the book and put it together 
at the end of the Chateau explosion to Posey. What he was going to do was he, when he was up in the machine gun nest with Bravos, when they looked like they were being overrun by Germans, he rips off his shirt, he smears himself with war paint, grabs his grease gun, and just starts shooting and screaming like Rambo and, until he shot down. They were planning on doing that. Clint Walker said, I rehearsed it and everything. But then, because Robert Aldridge knew that they were short on time, he decided, we're going to shoot Jim Brown throwing those grenades into the vent, and we're going to have to not be able to show what happened to Clint Walker because after what happens to Jim Brown, everything else is anticlimactic. And matter of fact, that was the main reason why Jim Brown was hired. Aldridge loved football, but he didn't know if Jim Brown could act or not. So he asked Jim Brown's agent, I love the story, legendary agent named Phil Gersh, who represented Brown in his first film. Everybody thinks Dirty Dozen was a film debut. It wasn't. It was a Western he made a year or two before called Rio Conchos. So when Phil Gersh presented Jim Brown to Robert Aldridge as a possible cast member, um, because Sidney Poitier passed, by the way, Aldridge said, look, I know this guy can play football, but what the hell else can he do? And Phil Gersh smiled and said, he can run faster than any actor you've got. And Aldridge said, okay, I think we can do something with that. And when you watch it, he does. Another great little side anecdote about Jim Brown was just before they were to shoot that scene, which is really well done. And everybody's egging him on. Come on, Jefferson. Just before he was going to do that, Aldridge, he had his own improv as well. Brown turned to Aldridge and he goes, look, I've had a lot of fun making this movie, but before I throw the grenades, will you let me kill a Nazi? <laughs> and Aldridge goes, you've got one of the best scenes in the movie. Why do you want to kill a Nazi? And he goes, ah, oh, come on, let me kill a Nazi. It'll be fun. And when you watch that scene, just before he does the run with the grenades, there's a sniper at the top of the chateau, and he shoots down on Brown, and Jim Brown fires at him, and he falls through the glass. Then he throws the grenades. So he got to kill a Nazi. <laughs> Going back to what you were saying earlier, I really appreciate the way that you summarized the novel and that you gave us that point of comparison. So I thought that the book was put together so well, and I hope overall it's been positive response because it's terrific. I haven't gotten a whole lot of professional book reviews. I've gotten about three or four, and all of them have been positive. But some of the reviewers on Amazon, who, with all due respect, may not be able to read a book too well. But some of them, I'd say maybe two or three at the most out of, I think, 20 physical reviews, not just ratings, but physical reviews that I got. Most of them have been very positive and outstanding, mostly five-star reviews. They're trying to get more reviews. I got one from the Library Journal, and I got one from the Washington Examiner. Very positive review. They got it. They understood what I was trying to do in the first couple of chapters. I start the book with a biography of Nathanson, which I think is important to do because you got to know where the author's coming from, working throughout how he got to write The Dirty Dozen. And by the way, like I mentioned before, I interviewed his son, Michael Nathanson, who's a published author himself. And a lot of people don't know this, but in the 80s, he wrote other stuff, McNathanson, other, other novels, with varying degrees of success. But in, I think it was like 1983, 84, he actually wrote a sequel to The Dirty Dozen. And it was called A Dirty Distant War. And as far as writing goes and story, it's better than The Dirty Dozen. It truly is. I read it. It's incredible. And the premise is this. He told an interviewer at the time, I think it was at the LA Times, that when he came up with the idea for it, it was based on the adventures of a philosopher doctor who had gone to Vietnam and what his experiences were. And he goes, I found that fascinating. And what he decided to do was write a novel about our entrance into Vietnam. And it takes place during World War II. It's not before the French got there or anything like that. It's during World War II. And he said, I was sick and tired of John Reisman. I didn't want any go anywhere near John Reisman. But he goes, the way this story was playing out, I realized John Reisman is the perfect lead. He's the guy to play this, to be in the story, the catalyst for the story. And so consequently, the many of the dozen who didn't die in the novel came back in Dirty Distant War to help Reisman on his mission. Now, Reisman's mission in the novel, The Dirty Dozen, he's not in the army. He is in the army, but he's in a special unit of the OSS. And if you know anything about the OSS, they're actually the precursor of the CIA. It was started by a wild bill named 
time escapes me. Robert De Niro played him in a movie. And so they're all about undercover work. And, he's, and Nathanson said the reason why he made Reisman in the OSS is because it made it more believable because he said the U.S. Army would never come up with something like this. It would have to be something really subversive and covert. And so John Reisman's job in A Dirty Distant War is to go into Southeast Asia under the guise of another mission. But his real mission is to find out where the Chinese, where the French, and where the Cambodians in Southeast Asia, well, then it was called Indochina, where do they stand in terms of whose side they're on during the war? Because they're getting mixed. And when he goes there and he starts finding stuff out, one of the people he encounters is this little revered man who had done time in a Chinese POW camp, and he had done this, that, and the other. And whatever adventure he had been in, he changes his name. And at the time Reisman meets him and, and bonds with him, he asks him what his name was. And he tells him, my name is Vietnamese for everyone's uncle. And, and so Reisman asks him, what does that mean? And this gentleman goes, people call me Ho Chi Minh. And after I read that, I looked it up. And apparently, Nathanson did his homework. That's true. And from there, it takes off into all these amazing adventures that are very believable. And as a friend of Nathanson told me, who I also interviewed, a guy named Frank McAdams, he goes, when I read the novel, you do this sometimes. When you read something that really gives you pause, he goes, I closed the book and sat on my couch for 30 minutes just staring at the back cover. It affected me that much. And it's funny, once he told me that, I did the same. It's really well written. And it ends by letting you know this is just the beginning. <laughs> really well done. There's a lot more to it. And anecdotes about everybody in the cast. Oh, when you asked me who I interviewed, I also interviewed a gentleman named Colin Maitland, who was one of the dozen, of the lower dozen. Several other people. Oh, Dora Reiser, who is the only known female in the cast, other than the prostitutes they bring in, who only have one or two lines. But she's the woman that Telly Savalas taunts and ultimately kills. I interviewed her. Great interview. Talk about ironies. She is the one who is, she's basically a Nazi prostitute, right? Or she called it herself, a Nazi whore. And the interesting irony is she's a Holocaust survivor. Right. And, and she told me some interesting things about having to play that character and the way it affected her. Another person I had interviewed. In terms of the book itself, I think people can still buy it based on how, however much I just shot my big mouth off. Because there's a whole lot of stuff in there that I didn't mention. Much of it being Bob Phillips' stories about babysitting Lee Marvin. They're great. They're terrific stories. They're a lot of fun. Obviously, we want to leave some mystery and try to get some more people to pick up your book. But I did want to ask you, what are you working on now? Immediately after I turned in the manuscript to Killing Generals, my agent called me up and said, Mazel tov, that's great. Congratulations. What's next? What are you going to do next? So he goes, okay, you got a week. <laughs> and then come back with, back to me with something. So what I did was we, okay, we talked about several possibilities. One of them I thought was really going to happen, a book about the making of a hustler. Now, the Paul Newman movie. Now, naturally, that movie came out about eight years before The Dirty Dozen. So there's a whole lot less people around. Now, Piper Laurie. She's still around. I think she's still in her 90s. She's still around. I had a contact to talk to her. The guy who wrote, directed, and produced the film, Robert Rawson, his daughter is alive, and she was involved in the filmmaking. I did get to contact her. My agent was friends with the guy who wrote the sequel, Richard Price, an amazing writer. Everything he does is just spectacular. He said, I'll put you in touch with Richard Price once you get the proposal together. I did all of that. You know, and because we were going to write, I was going to write about the sequel as well. He had contact with Scorsese, Tom Cruise. We were going to do all of that. And he wanted me to highlight the fact on the cover that Tom Cruise was involved in the film, in the sequel, because Tom Cruise is red hot. And I was like, he's always red hot. He never went out of uh, box office. And I put the whole thing together, kept my fingers crossed. And ultimately, the publisher who had published The Dirty Dozen went, nah, I don't think so. That went to the wayside. Then I talked about the possibility of doing a book on one of my all-time favorite films, Sweet Smell of Success, Burt Lancaster, Tony Curtis. God, I love that movie. It's a near-perfect film. And 
it's a gritty New York movies, but there's no gangsters. There's no you know, underworld figures. There's no crime story involved other than how crooked the lead characters are. And I put together what I consider to be a really good proposal. But once again, I was told it's too long ago. Nobody really cares. Never mind the fact that the film may have flopped when it came out financially, got rave reviews, and more importantly, it is a bona fide cult film now. It's off the charts. It's incredible. Anyway, he's, the editor still passed on it. Wouldn't even bring it up to the editorial board for the publisher to go thumbs up, thumbs down. After that, my editor said to me, my, excuse me, my agent said, look, I know you have favorite films and favorite actors. Why don't you... One of them being, by the way, Burt Lancaster, as I mentioned a moment ago. Also, uh, James Cagney. Oh, that was another possibility. I was thinking about writing a book on White Heat, but I don't know why. This is weird. He was able to get a contract for a book on the making of Strangers on a Train and Shadow of a Doubt, Hitchcock films from the 40s. I wanted to do White Heat, and he said to me, hey, that's one of my favorite movies, too, but there's nobody around to, to fortify your research. And I was very disappointed in that. So I tried Lancaster, I tried Cagney, even tried Paul Newman. Then he said, what about a Steve McQueen film? And I went, now we're on the right track. Because of the three, Steve McQueen is numero one of them. Always has been. And I have a specific reason why he's numero one of them. He asked me, what movies haven't been written about? Specific books. And the first one he said was, how about The Great Escape? And I went, there have been about five books written about the making of The Great Escape and the actual escape itself. And he goes, how about Bullet? And I went, how many books have been written about Bullet? There's actually a lot, and there's actually a book called Bullet, McQueen and His Machines. They've actually done books about the cars in the movie. And he said, let me ask you, what's your all-time favorite Steve McQueen movie? And I said, Papillon. And he said, sorry, it's not going to happen. It's not popular enough. And then he said, let me ask you, what was a popular Steve McQueen movie that nobody's written about? And I told him, and he said, that can work. I think we can get this to work. Now, I'm not going to tell you what movie that is because I don't want to put the jinx on it. And it's right now currently in the hands of the publisher who likes it and wants me to polish it a little bit more. And so maybe in a month or two, I'll get a, a yay or a nay. I, of course, would like to think it's a yay, but I think this can work. And if I can, I'm going to tell you the reason, if you don't mind, why I'm such a Stephen Pennington. Always liked him anyway, even when I was a little kid. I don't want to go too much into details in terms of specifics, but I had a kind of a rough childhood, personally. And part of that was based on the way I was raised. And at one point, matter of fact, the week the movie came into theaters, it was the summer of 73 when it came out. Now, I snuck out and I went to see it. And movie affects people emotionally, more than it does psychologically, or maybe even as much spiritually, but emotionally. There's that scene in the movie when he's in solitary confinement, hands down one of the best pieces of acting I've ever seen. It's not only so believable, it's heartrending. And when he's first in solitary confinement, he jumps up on the bars and whispers, I'm still here, you bastards. Got to me like nothing else. At the end of the movie, when he's on the raft made of coconuts and he looks right in the camera and says, hey, you bastards, I'm still here. That had an effect on me like nothing else. I got it. It makes me cheer up even now because of what I was going through. And it made me realize things are tough, but if you believe and fight back and don't let them get to you, you will rise. You will survive. And, the, and I'm not making this up. I went home that night and I watched The Great Escape. It was on TV that night. And when you see him you know, not quite making the jump over the barbed wire and he puts his hands up, and he looks at the Germans, the Nazis, and he smiles. It's, he's not giving up. This is not the end of the Cooler King. And then about a day or two later, it must have been like Steve McQueen week. I don't know. It was weird. TV showed the Reavers. And there's that great scene in the movie when he tells Mitch Vogel, the little kid, about how they're going to steal their grandfather's car and go all the way to Mississippi, to uh, wherever it is they're going. And Mitch Vogel goes, I don't know. Grandpa ain't going to like this. And Steve McQueen looks at the kid and he goes, I put a lot of store into what your grandpa said. I do. But if you ever want to reach your manhood, you got to say goodbye to the things you know. And hello to the things you don't. I swear to God, he was talking to me. 
he, he was because he was probably looking at the camera anyway. And you know, he was like some kind of disciple or like apostle or something. And then everything I've ever seen him in since may not affect me the same way, but he's never let me down in terms of an actor. Now, I know everybody thinks of him, those who like him and remember him, think of him as the king of cool, which to a certain extent he was. I won't take that away from him, especially in his most famous film. But that's not the Steve McQueen. I love the Steve McQueen who, who reflects what he really was as a person and the way he grew up, because I know he came from a really rough childhood. From what I've read, and I've read a lot about him as well as other film stars, other than maybe Cary Grant, Charlie Chaplin, and Marilyn Monroe, I think Steve McQueen probably had the worst childhood I've ever read about. And nowhere near, I didn't have that kind of childhood, thank God, but it was pretty bad. And knowing that and seeing what he did with certain characters, I would always notice he's not playing, he's playing the character yet, but he chose to play that character because it's in his life. He knows what that was like. He knows what it was like to be beaten, to be sent away, to be put in a prison camp, which he was as a child, to be hungry on the streets, all that stuff. And it's in those performances, Hell is for Heroes, Baby the Rain Must Fall, Soldier in the Rain, Love with the Proper Stranger. A lot of the films that aren't as well known, those are, in my opinion, the best performances. The Sand Pebbles, which he got a nomination for, but it's not really remembered as much. And that's unfortunate because that's why I'm a Steve McQueen fan. I love Burt Lancaster because he was just so bigger than life. And I got to meet him once. That was not only meet him, but talk to him for 20 minutes. And it was a movie bucket list moment. With James Cagney, it was because he was the little guy who always was tougher than anybody else in the movie. And I'm a little guy. And he had said in his contract that whatever movie he make, made, he could never hit a guy who was his same size. You always had to hit a guy that was bigger than him. And I was kind of, I love that. That's so cool. And he was a firecracker. He was never in repose. He was always like this. And that's one of the things about most modern actors I can't stand. They put you to sleep. But I like actors who have energy, who, who have spark. And a lot of people probably wouldn't think that about Steve McQueen, but he, he moved in a movie. He had a grace and a style about him. And sometimes he moved so fast you wouldn't even notice it. Carl Malden said that about him. He said there was this danger about Steve McQueen when he was on screen. You never knew if at any given moment he was just going to explode. And, and when he didn't, you were still waiting for it. You know, things like that. So I'm going off way too much about movies I like. But I mentioned that thing about Steve McQueen because it looks like there's a very good chance I'm going to be able to write about a Steve McQueen movie. And good. I hope it comes to pass. Dwayne, thank you so much for your time. This is so great talking with you. I'm so glad we could do this. Oh, thank you for being such a receptive audience. You've been a great host. You let me babble on and gave me reason to babble on. And I thank you for that. 